Hey, you have made it to Bones of a Nurse podcast. Are you ready to live your best life? Well, this is a space to celebrate and investigate personal transformation. These stories are from all walks of life, and together it creates an extraordinary quilt with the common thread being that of human personal transformation, which is the initiation into embracing our true joy, who we really are. So come with me and up-level as we learn to become the producers of our own soul's song. My next guest is going to teach you more about radical self-acceptance and self-love than you've ever heard in your life. Talk about being your authentic self, being brave enough to be your authentic self, moving from a life of desperation, no matter where you find that, to a life of pure delight. How you navigate the story that you tell yourselves, reconciling passageways, reframing spiritual intentions. I am starstruck and I'm so grateful for this next episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. I have a very special guest. I'm so grateful to have her here today. Terry has a fascinating, unbelievable story of transformation that she wants to tell with us and some hope and um, faith and how we can move forward in our own transformations, no matter what they are, no matter who we are or and who we aspire to be. Terry, can you introduce yourself? Hi. Um Yes, I'm Terry King, and before I do, let me tell you, I have, um, until you and I had talked, I had not come across to your podcast, and I have listened to some of your other guests, and I am humbled oh, to, to, to be anywhere near them. Uh, you have had some amazing guests, and if I were to be honest, I would rather we hang this up and I just go back to listening to your other ones. Um, <laughs> well, thank you for coming here and bearing all. It means so much to me. And um... So, but anyway, that's, um, I really mean that. And one of the things that I've heard you, I don't know if you use it in all of your intros, but at least in several you did. Uh, the phrase, um, uh, what is that phrase? We, uh, we are the producers of our, our own soul song. Yes, exactly. Yes, and I'm not a musical kind of person. Um, you know, I break radios. But um, uh, a similar line, uh, I was in counseling, and the 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 approach to counseling that we used was a, a, a counseling therapy called narrative therapy. And if I, I think that was the the right name. But it involved each week or between each session, I wrote a chapter uh, in my journal of my own history. And what that did is that gave us uh, an understanding of who I was and how I'd gotten to where I was at that point and where I would be going. And it was phenomenal. It was a. Um, it was a counselor at the Veterans Administration uh, because I'm a retired military. Uh, I was served in the Army for, for 28 years. And, you know, the Veterans Administration uh, in recent years has gotten a bad rap. 
Um, I'm not here to do a commercial for them, but I've gotten great care. And um, I hope that increasingly becomes everyone's experience. But anyway, after we were finished with the program of counseling, and it helped me tremendously, she gave me a little trivet, about four inch by four inch, and it said on it, you are the author of your own story. And so when I heard that on your podcast, you are the producer of your own soul song. That really, really resonated. Oh, so glad. Yes, because, well, what that means to me, as we're talking about transformation, it ain't over. The fat lady hasn't sung. Now, that's probably not a politically correct phrase anymore. Um, but um, the fact of the matter is, we are all becoming. And the only reason that we are not becoming what we could is ourselves. I had in my life so many environmental factors, but a lot of them were things that I projected from within that kept me from understanding myself or becoming myself. So that I just love those phrases, author of our own story, producer of our own soul song. Um, I, I shared with you when we were texting. Um, in one interview, I, I just casually said something to the effect of uh, sharing my story helps shape my story. And uh the the interviewer said wait we gotta write that down um and i've thought about that and um that really is true every time i have shared my story i gain more insight into myself so thank you for this privilege oh you're so welcome So, Terry, where do you want to start? Do you want to take us back to what it was like to be you when you were young? Okay. Um, I was shorter then. <laughs> um, and at a much, much better weight. Um, but um, I grew up, I have four brothers. I was the fourth out of five. And um, I grew up in a military family. My dad was a career military person. And so we moved every two to three years. Um, I was born in California and we actually, um, after that, lived there uh, a couple of more times. Um, but I really don't consider myself a Californian. Uh, if I tried to go back there now, I couldn't afford the housing. Um, but, um, <clears throat> I've lived all over the country and I've gone to a lot of schools and it's interesting when you, um, when you're the new person in school, uh, you find ways to make friends. And one of the gifts 
of being a military child, I think a lot of us are um, maybe by necessity, um, we're, we're more adaptable or maybe more flexible. Um, and I, I've seen that certainly in my brothers and I've appreciated that. Um, so being the only girl growing up in a family with four brothers and not realizing it was, um, was quite an experience as I look back. Um, there was a lot of, uh, testosterone in the house. Um, we joked about my mom wanting to have a female dog, uh, just so she could have some defense. And, um, um, so I grew up going to different places, living different places. Um, and one of the things that I, I discovered as I was growing up and I was around with my brothers, um, I participated in the boy things, but I always wanted to participate in the girl thing. And what kind of examples do you have of the things that you were pulled to? Well, you know what? I never got an easy bake oven. <laughs> When I was a little girl, I never got an easy bake oven. <laughs> I had one. I loved it. Yeah. I would, other little girls would have them and they would cook something and I would eat it. But I never got to do it. Um, we had G.I. Joe's. And um, sports, I was the child that was out in the outfield picking the dandelions. And it's safe to put a child like me out in the outfield because the ball's not going that far anyway. And so um, I remember one time I actually connected with the ball and it was a pop fly and somebody caught it. I don't know if it was a, an infielder or an outfielder, but I was so excited that I had gotten a hit. And my brother said, no, that's not a hit because you were caught. It was caught. You were out. I said, no, no, I hit it. <laughs> and that beat all the other times when I struck out. So, um, you know, I would see um, when I was in older elementary school, um, like girls um, in a little group holding a baby and ooing and aahing, and I wanted to go and join them but I couldn't. Um, now I did do as I, as I went in, Oh, maybe like, um, I guess in junior high, really, I did a lot of babysitting and I was pretty good at that. And then I became a little bit of an entrepreneur. I, um, washed cars, I mowed lawns, I delivered newspapers. I, I, um, did all kinds of things. Um, and then in high school on, I've always had, um, I mean, even in high school, I had two, three jobs at the same time, um, just because I was, um, I guess, kind of at that point, a, a go-getter, and uh, always did well in that. But um, so that's kind of my <clears throat> my youth, 
as I, um, as I, I guess about junior high school, I, um, a couple of things, you know, that's when you're starting to go through, um, adolescence and you're starting to figure out what life's about and, and start to notice boys or girls or, you know, whatever, um, and figure out, you know, what is the meaning of life or what is the meaning of my life or how do I measure up? Um, and, um, I think that's when my insecurity started, although I think it's rooted deeper. Um, I was always very, very smart. I'd get straight A's, uh, but it was embarrassing because if everybody else gets a lower grade and then they ask, well, what did you get? And, and they say, oh, of course you got an A, it's easy for you. So the teacher would pass out papers and I would quickly turn mine upside down because I wanted to fit in with the other kids. But it's not the same way, for example, with a child that's really good at sports. They hit that home run and the ball isn't caught. They get cheered. Um, so I kind of had this feeling that what I was really good at wasn't what mattered. And I wasn't as good at what did. So, you know, as I went on through high school, I, I, uh, I became in, uh, very active in drama and speech. And um, I don't know the difference between talking too much and being a good speaker. Um, I, um, I have literally spoken to one, an audience of one. I have spoken to an audience of thousands. Um, the number of people out there is not what matters. It's you know being able to connect with somebody. And I really don't, I don't understand the people who are afraid to speak in public. It just doesn't resonate with me, but I guess it's real. Um, and I feel for them. Um, but I became very good in, in communication. And Around junior high, as I was thinking about my place in life, I thought about, you know, it wouldn't be bad to follow uh, my dad in the military. And so I had that in mind. Um, well, I became involved in a church and I felt this internal calling um, to ministry. And I like to kind of demystify that because you know, we talk about a religious calling, but I think we all have callings. Um, I'm excited at uh, your calling to this uh, podcast and to, you know, to your career and to your family. And, you know, we all have callings. Um, and so I went through college and I went through seminary. It's a three years uh, postgraduate, a master's program. And then I served in a church as pastor for a couple of years, uh, three, I think. And then I entered the military uh, as a chaplain. And I had a, a good career. I served for 28 years and uh, became a, a senior chaplain and really enjoyed some great elements. I got to go to different places in the world that 
I never would have seen. Um, I got to interact with people I never would have known. It, it really broadened my understanding of faith because in the chaplaincy, we are not expected to violate our own beliefs, but we are expected to accommodate other people in theirs. And so um, I, as a Christian, would never be asked to lead a Jewish service or a Muslim service or something like that. Um, and that would be terribly inappropriate. But I did have, as a supervisory chaplain, uh, Jewish and Muslim and all kinds of different denominations of chaplains that um, I led and that I trained and that I resourced and that I oversaw. And in, um, in that, my job was to ensure that they had what they needed, even though what they, <clears throat> excuse me, even though what they were teaching might be very different from what I would teach, or even though their understanding of God might be different from mine, my role was to help them to be the best chaplain that they could be and the most effective that they could be. And I enjoyed that immensely. Um, I had the privilege of uh, teaching uh, at the chaplain school, the Army uh, Chaplain School. Each of the services has an actual school for uh, all of the different branches, including the chaplains. And we teach a lot of leadership and uh, just an, a number of, of uh, important things as people progress in their careers. And it was a delight to help students learn to interact and to realize that they were going to be supervising people who were very different from themselves. Um, I don't know how long you want me to keep talking. I'll talk all night, all day, all anything. Um, I think it's a very valuable part of the story. Okay. Well, so um, I deployed uh, back during the time of Desert Storm. And um, that was an amazing experience. Uh, there were some things that I remember that I'd rather not. Um, even though I was not in a frontline unit, um, war is not a good thing. And, you know, sometimes people, they get the idea of the military as warmongers or people that want war or enjoy fighting. Uh, maybe there's a certain amount of bravado that maybe some of the the fighting soldiers really have to build up to to do what we ask of them. But I think by and large, most every soldier would rather be home with their family, preserving the peace than somewhere else trying to put the peace back in place. And um, so you see things that you'd rather not see, and those memories don't go away. Um, I remember I saw um, a soldier from, a, a, from the enemy 
who had been killed and hanging out of his shirt pocket was a picture of his children. And I looked at that and I thought, those are my children. And he was where he was and I was where I was because we were each serving our nation. So um, I really pray for the diplomats. If they can help keep things straight, uh, maybe we don't have to work so much. Put us out of a job. Um, so, but then as time progressed, you know, Desert Storm was a long time ago, maybe before you were born. And so um, we went on and then we had more conflicts in the Middle East. Uh, by that time, I had progressed in uh, rank and position. Uh, the way the military is, you need a lot of people that are at the, the, the lower ranks doing the job and fewer and fewer at the more senior ranks supervising them. And so I ended up not deploying again, as many of our soldiers had. Uh, some deployed just back to back and over and over. Um, but the thing that was really difficult for me, um, I lived in an area where there was a very high concentration of military families. And the, the, when a soldier dies, a casualty notification team goes to tell the family. We try to do it right. It's, it's a terrible thing to have to do, but we try to make sure that we give the family accurate information, uh, timely information. The last thing we want in the world is for them to find out on social media uh, or possibly the nightly news. So we would go and we would knock on the door. And as we were getting ready to go, there was always uh, there's always one soldier, a sergeant or an officer who is of the equal rank or senior to the soldier who has died and then a chaplain. And so it is that other person who tells the family what has happened. And then the chaplain steps in to provide comfort and care and to assist, you know, with the immediate shock. And um, I know that we had nothing to do with those deaths. But I also know that until we knocked on that door, that family had a soldier serving somewhere of whom they were proud. And when they opened the door and saw us, they no longer did. And that haunted me. That haunted me. Um, I developed PTSD. I had... Um, uh, I would be driving down the road and suddenly I would be seeing things not on the road. Fortunately, I, I have had always been able to pull over and stop because once it starts, it kind of plays on its own. And I had begun drinking. Um, 
And I don't say that I drank because of this or because of that. I drank because I wanted to drink. Um, however, there were some things that contributed to it. My understanding of myself and who I was, who I am, my experiences uh, with uh, trauma. Um, and so I got to a point where I was drinking and after a while, I kind of summarized, it. I was holding a glass of wine until one day it was holding me and I wasn't in control. Well, in time, 10 months before retirement, I got a DUI. Fortunately, nobody was hurt. There was no accident. I was just weaving across the white line and the officer pulled me over and I spent a night in jail. A senior chaplain in the military is not expected to spend a night in jail or get a DUI. <laughs> it's, it's not career enhancing. Um, so I began to strive to preserve my retirement. And so I entered the, uh, the substance abuse program and I went to treatment and somewhere in there, I bought into it. And when I bought into it, I realized that the doctor who was working with me was right. I was suffering severe depression. And so I remember I was sitting on the side of my bed one evening it was after the, all of the intake interviews and before the, the program started the next morning. And I thought, it really is true. And so I prayed and I said, God, I guess I really am depressed. And oh, by the way, I might as well admit I'm an alcoholic too. Well, the next morning I went and I told the doctor that. And I thought I would be in trouble for trying to cover it up. And instead, he was delighted because I was buying in. And I had stumbled upon one of the things that they teach in some of the 12-step programs, that um, being honest with yourself, with your God, as you understand God, and with another human being. And that formula has kept me alive. So I went through counseling and I finished the, the inpatient treatment. And then I had weekly groups and individual sessions until I uh, finished my career. And after in one group session, one of the other participants shared their story in a very personal way. Um, I happened to have an appointment the next day individually with my counselor or a couple of days later, I don't remember. Um, and I had a box in my heart that I never opened and I never let anyone see inside. Nobody. And after hearing that other individual have the courage in a group to share their experience, I spoke with my counselor and I opened the lid on the box and I let her look inside. 
and she saw one of the two things. Now, the second one involves some other people's story, and it's not my place to tell anyone else's story. So the second one stays there in the box, and that's okay. It's healthy. Um, but I open the box, and I let her see who I was and the shame that I felt and the guilt that I carried. And it all evolved around my femininity. Because I had been born biologically as a male. And you listeners have already figured that part out. My voice is uh, not that good yet. I am in training. Um, maybe we need to, to give my trainer a raise, you know, something. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, um, but I had for so long had this struggle with an internal sense of femininity and yet growing up in a family that everybody thought had five sons and in a military environment that, I mean, there are great women serving in the military and I treasure them. But, you know, as I was growing up, the military was still a very strongly male environment. And so in retrospect, I think that I projected my fear on others around me. Um, unfortunately, both my parents passed before I came to understand myself and, and before I came out to anyone else. But I believe my parents would love me and accept me as I am. Beautiful. Um, in fact, my name, um, my name is actually Teresa Colleen, and I go by Terry. That was my aunt's name. And as I was growing up, my mom told me, I don't know how many times, over and over and over, if you had been born a girl, we were going to name you Teresa Colleen. Well, I assumed that that's what she said to each of my three brothers before me and my younger brother after me. Well, after I came out to my brothers, I said something about that. And they said, no, she never said that to us. Wow. So I don't know. You know, sometimes moms know things. And maybe that was a piece of it. What I really love, really love Carrie, so far about your story. I'm hearing, I'm hearing a little echo. I hope that goes away, but um, there it goes. Um, what I love is that, so you're telling us that your, your sobriety is what led you to finally get to a spot to where you were brave and had the courage to open the box of who you really were. And how much time had you had um, in your sobriety before that came about? Okay, well, let me, let me back up and say something that um, may sound strange, and I don't want it to be misunderstood. The DUI I got was perhaps the best thing that ever happened in my life. Not because it's good to drink and drive. It's terrible. People die. Um, but because that set me on a course in counseling where I was able to get help and start a journey toward becoming myself. 
Um, so when I see an officer, sometimes I'll tell them that. I'll say, I got a DUI and it's the best thing that ever happened to me. And thank you for what you do. Um, I don't recommend it for others. Um, so, but to answer your question, I've actually counted. Um, the number of times that I had met with that counselor, counting uh, some intensive counseling before I went into inpatient, um, several times a week, and then counting the group sessions, and then counting, you know, the, the individual sessions. Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember, it was 52 times, I believe, that I had met with her before I felt safe enough to open the box. That's a beautiful detail. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. So I got my DUI in July. I went to treatment in um, late August, came back late September. And then I finally had the courage to tell her, I think in about March. But what I told her, I didn't understand. Because what I told her was I had this compulsion to wear feminine things. And so when I went on a trip in my hotel room by myself, I, I would go by to a store. I would buy some ladies' clothes. I would go back to my room. I would put them on. I would stay in the room. Oh, I was way too afraid to go out. And then before I went home, I would throw them away. That's an awfully expensive way to do business. <laughs> it's a good thing I shopped at lower price stores. So, um, yeah. So uh, you were at wondering how long. So it was whatever July to uh, March. Um, but it was that 52 sessions and, but what it started with though, was not the counselor. It was another alcoholic in our group session who was willing to share their story. And that enabled me to come to a point where I could share mine. And that is, um, you know, there are a lot of different, um, programs uh, related to various types of addictions and a lot of them pattern after 12-step uh, programs. Um, and I've participated in, in some and still do. Um, but one of the keys is not that you have a professional telling you, and it's not that you have a boss or a spouse or kids or anybody else telling you, it's that you have another person like yourself and when you say something they're not surprised and we hear each other and we laugh about it and so when we meet we really don't even talk about the alcohol that much we talk about our character and what we're doing to improve our lives and the lives of others around us so um what that counselor did for me and i i wish i could just publicly tell the world who she is. She just did such a phenomenal job. Um, uh, she was a, a counselor in the army, uh, a civilian working for the army. And um, 
she saved my life. Because secrecy leads to shame. And I was filled with shame. And shame and depression lead to death. And so the I, uh, the, the incidence, I guess the percentage of suicide among LGBTQ plus veterans is much higher than it is among other veterans. And I think that mirrors the civilian world as well. The percentage of suicide among transgender veterans is even higher, perhaps exponentially. And so strangely, it was when I started to feel better that the depression just started fighting with me and I was on an emotional roller coaster. And so I was, um, the first time I ever thought about suicide, I was at a meeting celebrating the fact that I had gone 90 days without a drink. And I literally wept in that meeting for joy, cried like a baby. And then on the way home, thought about killing myself. Up and down. Um, but what that counselor did for me, she helped me to understand and to normalize what I was feeling and who I was. And after a couple of times talking with me about it, her job was to deal with the alcohol treatment. So she referred me to another counselor and she helped me as I continued to process and understand uh, my femininity. I did retire later that summer, the end of June. In fact, the last day that I was actually on active service was the day that uh, the uh, President Obama meant, uh, made it that transgender persons could serve in the military. So I joke and, you know, I had not understood myself prior to that really as as transgender. I didn't understand what it was, um, but I joke and I say, well, I had one day I was legal. <laughs> <laughs> Thank um, you, Obama. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll stay away from the politics. But um, um, so after I left the, the army, I became a part of the Veterans Affairs Medical System. And um, as I said earlier, you know, um, they have had problems, uh, but sometimes they, they get a bad rap, I think. Um, while I may have had a little difficulty initially getting into the system, once I was in the system, the care I have gotten has been phenomenal. And that includes, um, I had a psychiatric evaluation and um, the, the psychiatrist told me about a couple of things. Um, she told me about some PTSD treatment and she told me about the LGBT group. And I declined both because I didn't want to bother anybody. But somehow, like a sentence or two later, I said, wait a minute, no, please, yes, refer me for those. 
So she did. And at the the VA hospital where I was, they had uh, uh, just a, they still have a, a phenomenal program. It's called Pride in All Who Served. And um, the counselor who started it at that particular facility, uh, she had worked with it in another facility. And um, sometimes we have the um, assumption that somebody who works with something is a part of it. That's not always the case. Um, this individual just really cared and she saw a need that was not being met. And she poured her heart and her soul and her mind and her ability into it. So much that she's won national awards for innovation and she's, uh, before COVID, the VA was taking her around to other VA hospitals to train their leaders in how to set up such a program. Well, she is another person that I honestly can say saved my life. You know, the most dangerous person in my life is me. There are not a lot of people out to get me. If I just take normal safety precautions like all of us and don't walk down a dark alley at night with $1,000 bills sticking out of my pocket, <laughs> you know, I'm probably going to be okay. Except for me. Well, when I started into that LGBT group, um, my spouse and I, um, that morning I had an appointment for an intake interview. And so she said, oh, what's your appointment about? I said, oh, I'll talk to you about it when I get home. And so that evening as we were laying in bed, I told her, I came out to her. And I don't want to go into her story, but I will tell you that it was understandably very, very painful. And um, we have been married for 41 years. We're pending, uh, we're separated. And um, I have loved her. And she is the last person in the world I would ever have wanted to hurt. But not being myself was eating away my soul and literally trying to kill me. Um, because I had thought about suicide. I had written suicide notes. I, I had thought about ways to do it. Um, I, I could tell you some things I did to analyze and figure it out. But I don't want to give other people ideas. But I used my creativity. <laughs> And so, as time progressed, um, I increasingly presented as a woman, as I went out and about. Um, and But at home, to respect my spouse, I would change before I got home, which meant when I left the house in the morning, I was retired. I didn't have to go to work uh, most of the time. I was serving a small church where I worked Sunday morning and half a day during the week. Um, 
when I left home, I would pull off into a parking lot and change clothes. And then before I returned home, I would change back and wipe off any makeup. I was always afraid I would be caught and arrested for being mid-change. Fortunately, that never happened. Um, But um, it finally reached a point I couldn't do that. Because as time progressed, I tried to make deals with myself, with my God. If I could just do this much, if I can just wear pretty things, if I can just have long hair, if I can just have my ears pierced, if I could just wear mascara, that's not real noticeable. Actually, I found out it is. Um, If only this, then I'll be satisfied. There is no only this that satisfies one who is not herself. Wow. There isn't. And so being oneself when you're in one environment, but not in another, does not work. Being oneself sometimes, but not other times, doesn't work. And so as time went on, I had to be, I was, I would go very early in the morning to a local coffee shop. And one of the baristas there um, talked with me quite a bit. But one day she she took off her apron and on her break time and she came around and she sat across from me at the table and she said, I need to tell you something. She said, you need to make a choice. When you come in here dressed as a man, you drag in here and you're down and it shows. This was a barista? <laughs> this was a barista. And, and I probably shouldn't advertise the name, but I always get a venti. Um, dark roast, if I can. Um, <laughs> what a wonderful barista. Yes. Well, yes. And I, I wish I could tell you her name. Um, I will let her know about this podcast because um, she is another one who, who just touched my life so powerfully. She said, when you come in here dressed as a woman, you're up, you're, I don't remember her wording, you're perky, you're happy, you're, um, you're yourself. And so she just laid it in front of me. She says, here's what I see, these two things, and it's eating away at you and you need to make a choice. She used her break time and she worked hard. Yeah, I mean, if you've seen the the baristas, you know, at the place where they serve venti coffee, they are like <laughs> they are like machines. You know, the the it's a it's a it's a dance that they do. You know, uh, it's amazing how they work. She used her break time to ensure my well being, and that is so beautiful. And I I mean, I'm trying to put myself in your shoes and I could see how she would make this statement and it would be so powerful and meaningful and you would need to really recognize that it was time to make a choice. But how did you reconcile your fear of, of doing it? 
Oh, fear. You know, in some of the, the recovery programs, they, they use acronyms a lot. And one of the ones, there's a lot of acronyms for fear, but one of them is um, uh, like false evidence appearing real. Yes, I um, heard that one. Yeah, and, and you can you can Google it and you'll find probably a thousand more, but um, false expectations and, you know, just different things. At every step of my journey, I have been held back by fear. Afraid that I would not be accepted. Afraid that I would not be loved. Remember what I said way back in my childhood about feeling second best. And, you know, when, when I graduated from high school, I had a full scholarship. I had all kinds of things. And yet, if there were 12 awards handed out and I only got 10 of them, I felt like the one that had the other two outdid me. And that's an exaggeration. I did not get 10 out of 12. <laughs> you know, I wish I could say that. Um, no, but what I'm saying is any measure in which anyone did something different or more advanced in any arena than I did, fed my insecurity. And I felt second best. And so to be, I, I kind of had this thing in my mind that it, I know it's wrong, but it's that if I had attention, then I had approval. And if I had approval, then I have love and we all need love. So I became a comedian. I've done some stand-up, I enjoy it. Um, and so fear of not having approval, not having acceptance, not having love, um, I also told myself I wanted to be sensitive to those around me, like my family, and I did. Um, but even had I not wanted to be sensitive to them, and I genuinely did, fear was very powerful. And I remember my counselor, the, the one at the VA, one, one session, she looked at me and she said, you know, you're pretty brave. And what I would do at that point is I would come to the sessions dressed as a woman. When I entered the lobby of the hospital, I would scan the room before I was committed to it to see if there was anybody I might know to make sure I wasn't discovered. Um, I was always looking over my shoulder in fear. And so she said, you're, you're really pretty brave. She was trying to encourage me. And I thought about it. I, thought, I said, no, ma'am, I'm desperate. Doing what I have done, yes, it's taken a lot of bravery. Um, and I get people that talk behind my back or sneer or laugh or, you know, whatever the things they do are. Um, and as time's gone, I disregard them more easily than I used to. But it wasn't courage or bravery as much as that has been needed. It was desperation to be myself. So you had, so you had to, to into, into like, like 
radical, radical self. Yes. Like you had to be radical on your own behalf and just, just yeah. out of desperation and you couldn't have done it without that desperate space. No, I couldn't have. And um, there came a time when I was participating in some training with this counselor, by the way, over time, she quit being my provider and we severed that relationship and um, uh, then after an appropriate amount of time, um, I got to help with some of the training that she conducted for staff, including chaplains. And she would go through the facts, the slideshow telling about LGBTQ veterans. And then I would share my story. I was kind of the training aide, I joke about it. And, um, a chaplain uh, that was in the training one day afterwards said to me, you know, Terry, when you learn to accept yourself, other people will. Wow. When you learn to accept yourself, other people will. Wow. Now, I won't tell you her name, but it's only because I don't remember. But she doesn't know it, and she may never hear this. She may never recognize herself in it, but she is another one who touched and changed my life. Um, and so from then on, it's been a gradual process of accepting myself. And in the process, I've taken on some of the things that all women do. Do you know that my face isn't pretty enough, my hair is not right, my bust isn't big enough, and my belly's too big? My hips aren't right. I don't think I look right when I walk down the street. And my voice isn't right. Let me tell you all the things that are wrong with me. (laughs) That every other woman sees when she looks at herself. And what's interesting to me, you know, I grew up with a biologically male body. And so as I grew up, you know, I found girls interesting. Married one. Um, I look at ladies who don't realize and who think themselves not beautiful. And I look at them and I think, how in the world you're just so lovely. You're so pretty. Um, You're so beautiful. And it doesn't matter the size or the dimensions or the the proportions or the configuration. um, As long as it's somebody else. But we all internalize our own negatives. I internalized transphobia. I internalized, I just, what, what could you say? lgbtq phobia, <laughs> whatever that, that is. I have internalized misogyny. Um, I have internalized a lot of things, just like a lot of other women do, if not all of us. Um, and that's not helpful for us. So, um, 
I was joking with you uh, before we started the show. Um, I'm in a unique position in that I'm learning. I have friends who help me, other girlfriends who help me with my dressing. In fact, the family with whom I live, sometimes I'll come downstairs from my room and, and she'll look at me and send me back upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> she helps me. Um, she says, please, you don't need that much makeup or whatever it is. Um, and she sends me back to the store sometimes to return things that I bought. Um, all in my own best interest. Um, you know, and um, uh, I don't remember where I was going with that, but but we, uh, where was I going? Well, you know, I really like what you were saying about how we all internalize these negatives. And I think it's a good idea to kind of look at, if you don't mind sharing, Terry, about how you can catch yourself day by day to not live in that trap, to live a little bit more joyful and a little bit more graceful because you've allowed yourself to unfold in this radical self-acceptance and self-love and and all of us struggle with those things that we internalize and the thoughts that we believe you know in ourselves so so what makes you feel freer how do you do it every day okay well um and that was what that's where i was going is i get prettier every day <laughs> yeah. that's it um all <laughs> women may not feel that way but i've started late um so um I've got I've got uh, plenty of room for growth. You know, I'm committed. I mean, you know, we burn the ships as the old saying goes. I'm not going back. Um I am um I have found delight in who I am. Whereas I found desperation in who I thought I was. Wow, beautiful. And um we got to write that one down. That's another good one. Um, I'm so impressed with some of my own quotes. Um, you know, I get, I, you know, I was joking about uh, the family with whom I live. I get a lot of help from friends, whether it's that barista I mentioned, uh, whether it's uh, other girlfriends, um, um, whether it's, uh, you know, I have a couple of girlfriends that were members, uh, several at the gym I was a member of that, that gave me a lot of pointers and advice. But I mean, all of those, um, all that positive reinforcement that I do get, you know, it living solely on external validation is not healthy, but it never hurts <laughs> unless you get arrogant. Um, but, um, and connection, external connection yes. is invaluable. Yes, yes. And, you know, I have, um, I have at the church that I have now become a part of, they have a uh, an LGBTQ support group that um, with COVID, we meet online, on, on, uh, uh, online through the windows. Um, most of my social group now is in windows. Um, but um, the connections with people with whom there are similarities, there are Facebook groups that I affiliate with, whether it's about my... Uh, my substance use or whether it's about my transition um finding ways to connect with other people like you said connecting with other people uh is um is essential um but you know stepping back and reframing my own understanding of my own faith 
made a big difference. Because from my faith background, if you take the teachings literally and at face value, and I'm, I want to be careful here not to be critical of, of how anybody else understands their faith. Um, if you do that literally, um, then you can have one understanding. But if you step back and you, you think about the identity of who God is and the intent of God's message, then one can begin to understand those very same passages in a very different way. And that has helped me a lot. I am convinced that there, and I, I'm not going to start preaching, but I am convinced that there is nothing you can do or I can do to stop God from loving us. Nothing. And um, so that's been integral for me. You know, I, like I said, I, I served for years as a minister. Um, and so being able to wrap my mind around that, and that's where I got a lot of my shame and guilt that I mentioned earlier. But um, I've just come to realize that that leads to death. And the God that I serve leads to life. Um, and then taking my eyes off of myself and putting it on others. You know, when I am at most risk of depression or spiraling downward, it's when I focused on myself and I started into the poor me's. When I am busy reaching out to others or helping others or whatever it is, focused on others, loving others, I'm a lot healthier. Well, that's so beautiful, beautiful advice. I just want you to know how much your story means to me, too, about um, just living the desperation of the need to live your authentic life and to be your authentic self. I don't think there's a human being on the planet that that message isn't important to. Oh, we all need it. Yes. And it's, it's not about being, I, I, I do not expect very many of your uh, listeners just to wake up tomorrow morning and say, Oh, I'm transgender <laughs> or I'm anything else. But if every one of us can just take the I, I don't know um, the the time to stop and listen to our own hearts yeah I mean at some point in your life you probably had to be like okay well what if I die in five years how am I how am I gonna live this life like yeah. you know, how am I gonna do it I mean we we don't know what's gonna happen we don't That's know right. yeah and you know as far as transitioning um without going into too much detail, you know, the entire process of transitioning costs tens of thousands of dollars and a lot of insurance doesn't cover it. So a lot of transgender uh, individuals fund it themselves one way or another, or they never get to. And um, perhaps that will change. I, I don't know, but um you always have to have hope that you're on a trajectory 
toward the fullest authenticity possible. Whatever that means to you. Exactly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. For some people, it may be education. Mm -hmm. Some people, it's their career or their family or, or whatever it is. Well, Terry, we'll put your Venmo around um, the Facebook <laughs> around this podcast. So. Yeah, send your money too. <laughs> God, well, this has just been so beautiful, and I just feel so close to you, and I'm so grateful for um, having the opportunity to share this story. It's um, it's transformation in its fullest, but the radical self acceptance that you've done is is just. It just blows my heart up. So so thank you so much, Terry. Well, Tanya, thank you for letting me be a part of this. And I am delighted that I've gotten to know you and uh, gotten to participate in this. And as I said at the beginning, I am anxious to go back and listen to your uh, your other guests that, have, that are so phenomenal. Um, <laughs> you really have, you have done great. And I just wish you the best of success uh, in, uh, in this venture. It's powerful. Thank you so much, Terry. Thanks. Okay. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.